0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. How is technology going to transform the way we choose where to live and how to live? Chad Curry is currently the Director of Technology Partnerships for EXP Realty and formerly the Managing Director of CRT Labs, the think tank for the National Association of Realtors. And in this fascinating discussion, we talk about how autonomous vehicles will dramatically alter the places that people choose to live and work. We talk about what will happen when consumers become net producers of energy rather than just consumers. We discuss how blockchain, augmented reality, and other technologies are going to impact the home purchasing and living process. And we talk about how agents are gonna take advantage of all of these technologies to reposition themselves in the marketplace. I thought it was a super fascinating discussion, and I think it's one that's going to impact basically every one of us in the next 10 years. Uh, so I hope you find it interesting. And with that, uh, let's go to Chad. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Why don't we just start with kind of, you're at a dinner party or whatever, and someone asks you what it is that you do, you know, you're not a real estate agent, what, what is it you're doing for them or whatever? I mean, how do, you, how do you describe kind of your job and talk about your day and the kinds of things that you spend your time on?
1: I'm director for a group at NAR that looks at emerging technologies in real estate. So where is the industry going in the next five to 10 years? And how are these technologies that are outside our space going to impact that? So in 2014, I set up a lab uh, for NAR. Uh, And essentially, the seed for that was big data, uh, the predictive analytics and big data area. Uh, And so things like the Internet of Things, uh, we were looking at. And uh, smart homes and smart cities, we did a lot of work on smart homes, blockchain, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, I and mean, these things that would generate copious amounts of data because these sensors that were going online uh, could tell us a ton about how we were living and, and what we could do to, to improve upon that. So that type of data will impact real estate, obviously. So yeah, my job is to look at, the trends that are that are coming and how they will impact real estate and what we can do to improve quality of life using those uh, data points. I don't sell real estate, but what I, I do is is essentially act as a canary in the coal mine and help our members understand better what these technologies will mean for their business.
0: Are they sort of luddites with a lot of this stuff or are they are they generally excited about things or are they nervous or scared? Or how would you describe kind of the mentality of the industry as it relates to as they're seeing all of this stuff kind of starting to appear.
1: Yeah, so we have 1.3 million members. So it depends. <laughs> Our average age for a membership is around 56. You know, from the day to day, their main concern is is helping people find homes. Um, so you get you get various uh, levels of excitement, fear and uh, Uh, misunderstanding and but also very uh, competent and experienced i would say that the smartphone has been very transformative to their business and and the applications on the smartphone and a lot of members rely on those very heavily Uh, not just for calls and texts but for organization for their crms for their analyses their comps and providing better service to their their clients
0: It seems like for the most part, the business model has been the same for a long time, where every five years or 10 years or whatever, I might reach out to you and it's one big transaction. And then, you know, you don't hear from me again. And maybe I refer friends and things like that. But before we get into like the specific technologies or things like that, at a business model level, is anybody proposing or thinking about sort of alternative models where they maybe can provide more value kind of on an ongoing basis or, or get away from the one big transaction and kind of develop a, a more kind of long-term or regular relationship with buyers?
1: A lot of our members work on specializations. You know, they'll work on differentiating themselves by being an expert in, in a specific area. You know, there are some realtors who will work specifically with teachers or in, in schools uh, and work with PTOs to, you know, become a better acclimated to uh, neighborhoods and the needs of the communities but there are others that there's a realtor in in, uh, nashville and she her whole thing is she's the biking realtor she rides bicycles everywhere to give people perspective on their communities Uh, so she'll get bicycles and have her clients ride bicycles with her around neighborhoods to get that get that level of view if you've got over two million real estate agents and 1.3 being members of us uh, you have to figure out ways to specialize and differentiate yourself, um, and and offer better service. And I think here at NAR, there's a new program called Code of Excellence, which is about raising the bar and professionalism in the industry, and about providing better service to to their clients. And so, if technology can be a differentiator, uh, we've seen people use that. Uh, you know, where there are agents that specialize in international real estate and use uh, FaceTime and you know, video chat apps to uh, show properties or three d things like Matterport to show properties to clients that are overseas so yeah there's tons of people thinking about specialization the green is another big one too thinking about uh, sustainability that's a that's a huge one right now so and actually we have agents also trying to specialize in smart home technology and help people think about the savings they could get with thermostats, the safety they can have with uh, smoke detectors or water leak detectors or smart cameras, and help people in that part of the process. You can't think of a home as a one and done. I've sold this home, now I just move on because those clients, they're lead generators. You know, they refer, and so the services that you can offer post uh, post sale can really help differentiate. So uh, if I can help them have a better quality of life in that home, then that helps me with my transactions later on.
0: At a macro level, there's been a combination of things like, you know, the ri- rise of e-commerce and people's comfort level with ordering things online and, you know, things like Peloton where now I'm, I can theoretically work out and be uh-huh. you know connected and track my workouts or whatever at home and obviously grocery delivery and all that kind of stuff. It seems like a lot of the, the startup activity and the high growth, you know, growth stage startups has been around not necessarily keeping me in my home, but trying to be more convenient and coming to where I am. With all of that happening, I mean, is, is that changing the way that people, you know, obviously the way people live? But I mean, when, when it comes time to kind of think about a house, is it starting to uh, manifest itself and changing the criteria that are important to them, you know, like proximity to a gym or proximity to a grocery store or something like that. Is that, is that changing? Yeah, I think, I
1: think walkability is becoming a huge thing for people. Like they want to have the services, like what you're talking about is having services come to you. Right. And by walkability, what I mean to say is, uh, you know, amenities like parks and green spaces are becoming more and more important and experiences, with respect to malls and grocery stores, if I can order things on demand, I have less of a need to be close to them. I mean, part of the walkability too is urban farming, urban agriculture. Uh, community farms are becoming things that people are more and more interested in. But what's interesting about that too? We'll talk about autonomous uh, vehicles later. But with the rise of those uh, those types of services, you know, we could see impacts on values of homes close to transit or further away from transit. You know, there's a talk about autonomous vehicles helping with traffic. And a side uh, effect of that will be that maybe people who live in the suburbs will want to stay in the suburbs and not necessarily live in the, the dense urban areas. But so home values, you know, could be impacted by these technologies. Malls, then we have to figure out what to do with the space that we're these were once the sought-after spaces, malls and these uh, commercial spaces. What happens to those? And you know, we've been looking at things like, what does work mean in the future? Uh, if if you can do work from home, you know, you don't need to have a space to go to necessarily. Your office space. You can do a co-working space, and you could go to other other types of spaces. And you, you know you asked about people differentiating. there are some brokerages uh, who have opened up co-working spaces, you know where they 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 rent desks because the agents don't necessarily need them all the time. They, if if things are going well for them, they're out in the field or they might want to work from somewhere else or but they're also co-branding spaces. There's actually a hardware store in Houston that's also has a real it's a green hardware store with a green real estate brand in the the building as well. So people might be looking for low VOC paints, might want to sell their property, can go over and talk to. Talk to the brokers about that um, as they're getting the hardware needs met. Uh, you know, with with these spaces, they can become more flexible. There there are people now building homes, luxury homes and low low income homes, uh, in malls to to make them more purposeful. People can really live where they want to live uh, in the near future here and live. You know, not not be not be uh, tied down by jobs or or. Proximity to things like grocery stores or malls or, or shopping needs. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be really interesting uh, to see what happens in the next five to ten years.
0: Do the agents are they kind of on the on the front end of that cycle in the sense of as people look at where people are moving, whether they're kind of migrating towards urban areas or suburban areas or whatever, is that shaped at all by? The agents themselves in terms of someone's coming to them and saying, hey, I want to move to a new place. Are they shifting consumer preferences in any way or are they mostly reactionary and trying to give customers sort of what they already know that they want?
1: You know, and uh, the term reactionary, reactionary sometimes has the, the connotation of being uh, they just have to move. But what, what they, they're sounding boards, so they're not just hearing from that person. They're hearing from other people as well. They can start to see. I mean, I think you know what's interesting about them is their marketing comes from what they're hearing other agents say. You know, what, or their 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 market uh, insights come from what they hear other agents say, but also their their clients say and whatever groups they're a part of, uh, neighborhood groups. What they do is they they respond to the to the demands. Uh, it's obvious that they would do that, but I mean, what I mean to say is that those trends are really influenced by what they're hearing on the ground. We had thousands of agents from all over the country come in here uh, last year to do tours. And when they would come in, we had an aquaponics system in our lab, uh, which is you know basically uh, you have these plants that they gather their nutrients from water from a fish tank. And they clean the water, and the water goes back down in the fish tank. So it's a, it's a, it's a symbiotic system. Uh, We had one of those to demonstrate in here. And we had agents from rural Wisconsin, Kansas City, uh, New York, everywhere. And they would say, oh, is that aquaponics? They were able to talk about it because of things that were happening in their areas and questions they were getting from clients. These micro food ecosystems are becoming more and more important to clients and our, our members are listening to that. Like I said, it's anecdotal, but they are responsive to it. What I wanted to give is an example of one that you wouldn't think would be top of mind, but they were hearing about
0: and they, they, they have to respond to it. You mentioned, uh, you know, some of the smart home stuff, you know, obviously people are getting Alexa devices <laughs> or Google Smart Assistant or whatever, um, and Nest and the doorbell and all those sorts of things. Where, where do you sort of see that kind of headed uh, over the next few years? And, and maybe what are you excited about? What do you think? Are there any downsides or, or risks to all of that stuff, or is it all just kind of net gain for people? Does that have any impact in terms of the types of places that we choose to live as those things start to become more and more embedded into our lives?
1: One of the things that people need to be concerned about are the amounts of data that are coming off these devices and, and their ownership of that data. You know, we, we talk to agents about that a lot, data privacy and we also have to think about what, what, is, the, what is it I can gain? Um, you know, almost think of that data like a currency. And we've talked to agents, and actually about three years ago, we demonstrated for MLSs at our real estate standards conference, real estate standards organization, uh, we demonstrated how this data could be used to show how somebody has owned the home over time. So CO2 levels can be controlled by the fans in the home and filters. Um, humidity levels can be monitored and and managed uh, to keep ahead of mold and bacteria growth. Um, so really about this organism that is your home and how you can help improve upon it. And so we talked to agents about that, about it being this proactive thing that can help you get ahead of home problems. So it can be used for security. Water leak detectors are of a big interest to our members uh, because if they have a property that's vacant, they can monitor that and make sure that there's no mold growing in the basement or any water leaking in there while it's not uh, not being lived in. The positives, for me, out, outweigh the, the negatives, even though I started with data privacy. I think what it does is it allows people to, you know, by using data, have a better sense of home ownership. In the future, I think where it's going is your home will be able to get ahead of any maintenance issues you might have with your HVAC system, uh, monitoring the time it takes for a fan to, or a, a cooling system to. Cool a home within uh, a certain cycle and watch that grow longer over time. It can know when when uh, a piece is about to be end of life and send an order manifest and schedule an appointment with a managed person uh, before you actually have a problem. And so I think you know your home is going to be more it'll service itself more than than you'll need to service it um, and remind you of things you need to do.
0: Is there like an interoperability kind of piece to that to really unlock some of that potential? Are they, yeah. Is anybody trying to solve that already?
1: That's something when we started the lab, that was one of the things we were very, very interested in was this idea of interoperability and standards. We have worked on the real estate standards organization for uh, since its inception in 2001. What it came to help us understand is for these devices to get the full benefit of them, There needs to be some type of standard interoperability. And so you've got Thread now coming from Nest's group, uh, Google. You know, you've got the IoT consortium and what they're doing, and IoTivity uh, was one that was around for a while. But, you know, what's interesting is now with these voice-enabled systems, it's funny how people have really adopted these. With all the concerns around privacy and security, the voice-enabled is – You know, it it performs a trick for you, right? It it makes you feel like you're talking to something. And so I think we've accepted it in in that regard. And with those systems, they've made it so easy for you to integrate into their system if you have a smart home device. that I think these are becoming the interoperability standards. And, And what's interesting about that is that voice is portable. It's not just going to reside in your home. Your services like cars they'll also have voice-enabled. I mean, like, if you look at what Amazon's done recently, um, they've purchased a lock company. They have Ring. They have voice. And now they've created a voice device that goes in your car. Um, They have a little bar now that you can put in your your car and talk to Alexa. And you look at Google, and they have Google Home, but they also have Android Auto. And so this convergence of space, and I, I like to say, like, the built environment is the first space vehicle is second space but now you're going to have these two come together and create a third space which is a mobile office a mobile home a mobile hotel that will have your preferences
0: uh in it we were talking about some of the smart city stuff a little bit earlier yeah. i know utility companies are having to think around like some of the changes that uh you know, solar panels are becoming cheaper and more prevalent. And there's, there's, there's supposedly there's a, there's a place, I think I saw it's like 2028, maybe in the United States, but it's coming. Um, and it'll happen earlier in other, other parts of the world, but, uh, where it's cheaper or as, as expensive or cheaper for consumers to produce their own energy than it would be to kind of get it from sort of the traditional grid. And people are talking about this whole world of like, how, how does that impact utility companies with creating microgrids or even, um, buying excess energy from the customer. How how do you see renewable energy sort of impacting the way that we buy homes? Does that become like a benefit in the sense that my, my, my property becomes almost income producing (laughs) in a way or, you know, how do you see that playing out?
1: That is possible, you know. I think with the building materials uh, becoming, you know, this idea of all these technologies—all these technologies will converge, like IoT, AI, blockchain. They all come together and work together. But the devices in those separate verticals will also converge. So, like to get back to smart homes, just for a moment, uh, you know, you can you can buy an Ecobee thermostat now that has Alexa voice on it, right? So they'll start to become uh, multi-purpose now. With respect to renewables, the parts that make up the home will also become energy harvesters. So the first version of this is Tesla's solar shingles. And there's now also a company called Onyx, and they make uh, and sage glass as well. Onyx, they make glass uh, that's transparent, but also acts as a photovoltaic harvester. As you add elements to your home that can become these energy harvesters, maybe you even have a wind tree in, in your yard but you add these things to your home that can harvest energy, perform the function needed for the home itself to let light in or be able to see outside as a, as a window, uh, siding to protect your home, but also, uh, the UV light is be able to go through the, the, the siding itself and excitate the photovoltaics. Yeah. I think you'll, you'll start to see some of that. You'll see, you know, those desirable features. Um, right now, Net zero uh, is one of those things that people are are starting to put on the MLS. They will get questions about. I mean, people go to open houses and they're asking for utility bills, you know, because they want to see how this home performs. And so, if you can provide your own energy and, and have this microgrid uh, where you're able to supply the energy, um, then it becomes really interesting. And and with respect to blockchain. Uh, there's a company called Lo3 Energy in Brooklyn, uh, where if I'm living in Brooklyn and I see somebody has solar panels, I can join this transactive energy market and purchase energy from one of my neighbors using blockchain. And Consensus uh, is a, a, an Ethereum studio that has built. They call themselves hubs, so like their their Consensus has these hubs, uh, these Ethereum studio hubs, and then they have companies they call spokes. And one of the spokes is a company called Grid Plus that's working on this problem um, about making transactive energy more accessible.
0: And, and by uh, that you mean peer to peer, where they're cutting out the utility yeah. company entirely; it's entirely peer to peer transaction.
1: Uh, as I understand it, I can't speak for certain, but utilities—you know—that's an area that they they could look at and see what uh, what it might mean for them.
0: What about the, the kind of the smart city stuff in general? So you take that kind of at a, a you know a smart home, and now you plug it into a community of smart homes, or and and then you know supported supported by kind of smart infrastructure. How do you? See, I know you have kind of an interest in the smart city stuff in general. But how do you how do you see that kind of uh, unfolding over the next ten years or so?
1: Honestly, in my opinion, the Trojan horse uh, for more smart home adoption is going to be around environmental quality and air quality, especially. There are studies around right now, asthma, and uh, one professor in particular at the University of Chicago here, um, he's been looking at the interruption of the endocrine system uh, with air quality, things like black carbon and and, uh, nitrous dioxide and what they mean for the rate of diabetes, um, and actually is finding that the interruption of the endocrine system because of air quality has a high impact on whether or not you are susceptible to developing diabetes, more so than diet. You know, the reason I'm bringing that up is because that's where smart cities get us, is is if we can see environmental quality around the city on a real-time basis. uh, We have projects here in Chicago, the Array of Things, um, which is uh, the University of Chicago and Argonne Labs and the city of Chicago putting up 500 of these nodes around the city to tell us about air quality, to tell us about traffic patterns and to tell us about solar exposure. So if I wanted to add, you know, the siding or the windows or the shingles that might improve my home's value because they're solar, they're photovoltaic, I could look at solar exposure in my city on a micro basis. You know, we have these EPA towers uh, that tell us about environmental quality, but they're only based uh, by the airports and one down one or two downtown here somewhere. But if we have these on a micro level, that becomes really compelling. And then with autonomous vehicles, uh, they are going to put sensors like these on those vehicles and they will tell us, you know, on a meter by meter basis, what the air quality is in real time. That could also be something I consider before I move into a home, what the environmental quality is around that home. You know, that could incentivize the city to improve air quality Based on you know what people are doing uh, with purchasing property or where they want to work. So China, uh, in China, the the companies there are posting their own air quality score outside the buildings because of the air quality issues in China. And they're doing that because they're trying to attract em- attract employees because they're they're adding filtration systems and trying to improve air quality in the buildings because air quality in buildings is five times worse than outside. But the outside air quality also impacts the, the inside air quality. That type of thing, that, that type of data about our microclimate and about temperature and humidity will help us be much more responsive um, and, and improve our cities, I think, much more greatly than, than we've ever been able to.
0: That's really neat. Uh, you mentioned autonomous vehicles. And I know, you know you've, you've you know, I've talked about this before in terms of depending on what you read, they're, they're imminently <laughs> arriving yeah. or they're a decade or more away. From your perspective, what are some of the hurdles that kind of have to be overcome to sort of make that uh, a reality? And then, how do you see that impacting sort of the way that we, the way that we kind of live and where we choose to live and all that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so uh, autonomous vehicles, I think, are going to be a, a very impactful in, in the short term. Um, in fact, just uh, two days ago, Google uh, was just given approval; uh, their Waymo company was given approval to have a level five autonomous vehicles in Palo Alto, Mountain View, Los Gatos area of California. And just to give some perspective, uh, levels of autonomy in, in vehicles, level zero is a vehicle that I control totally. Level five is a vehicle where no one has to be in the front seat for any reason. And so now they've been approved for level five and they've been doing it in Arizona actually. They have a Waymo service down there That's picking people up for the last uh, six, seven months, I think. Um, Another company, Newtonomy, they've been working in Singapore uh, with level five vehicles for a while. But they have a level four service where they essentially have somebody in the seat uh, who's there in case there's any issues with the car. They have a level four service since the summer in Boston, and it's going all over Boston um, um, right now. So I am pretty bullish on this. Like I think in the next couple of years, individual, individually owned vehicles are going to go start going down. Um, and in fact, if you look at data around uh, licensure uh, for vehicles, uh, driver's licenses, 16-year-olds, uh, 74% of 16-year-olds today have a driver's license compared to 95% when I was a kid. So I think you know, there's, a, there's a cultural shift happening. Uh, I think the, the, the hurdles include understanding. People are very nervous about these things. Uh, you're, you're, you're letting go of something. You're letting you – know something you had control over your whole life, you're now just letting it be controlled by a machine, uh, by a computer. So it feels a little unsettling. But what a lot of people don't realize is the majority of flights, commercial air flights – the, the, a high percentage of that commercial air flight that you're on is done by a machine. It's autopilot. Takeoffs and landings are essentially the only spaces that commercial air pilots uh, are, are controlling. And if you look at the data around that, there were no commercial air, air flight deaths in the U.S. last year. There were 37,000 vehicle fatalities in the U.S.,
0: there's like a PR optics piece to it, right? Where it's like right. the one, they haven't really figured out a way to navigate that yet and to tell that, that narrative in a way that makes people feel more comfortable. I know you also had mentioned yeah. you know, when we talked before about the idea of what are some of the ethical decisions that are going to happen when the algorithm makes a choice of kind of doing one thing or the other and how, yeah. how that plays out.
1: That that is true, and and just to get get back to the the, the fatalities, there was the fatality in, in Arizona uh, with the Uber driven vehicle, and Uber is just now getting back on the road with their uh, self driving vehicles. But Highway Safety Transportation Board looked at that that accident. The software registered that there was someone coming into the 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 space. Well, what happened was Uber had disabled volvo's safety features on the vehicle because that would have slowed the car down The volvo safety features while the software is driving those safety features are disabled because it conflicts with the software and you know the woman who was crossing the street too she also had her back to where the vehicle was coming from in a 45 mile an hour area and was wearing all black at night so um there's some talk around safety with respect to these. And that's why the reason I'm talking about this is because of the, the question of ethics uh, in this in this stuff and the ethical concerns around, I'm in the vehicle and there's a person in the crosswalk. The vehicle is going to have to figure out what to do. Does it engage with the, the person or do something that causes me injury or harm? What's interesting about that question to me is I think we're going to, we're going to see much Less of that because what we're thinking about when we think about autonomous vehicles, we're thinking about the speeds and the streets that are built currently to handle traffic. We're not thinking about what the streetscapes will look like when these vehicles are in a, a higher degree of uh, usage. Initially, the challenges we're going to have are we're going to have more of these vehicles on more and more of these vehicles on the streets, but also there's going to be human drivers. So we're going to have to determine how best to allow these vehicles uh, to navigate and what areas we have them navigate in as we move toward. And and I will tell you that um, I'm convening a panel on this topic uh, this week on autonomous vehicles. And one of my panelists is from Liberty Mutual, the insurance company, uh, because they're thinking about insurance and what this means and what the the implications are of this.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's some almost existential – Eventually. I mean, there's some existential risk to to them when that transition fully happens and the number of accidents plummet, right? -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And so they're looking at new markets for this. Like, what does it mean? Who are they insuring and who are the, you know, because car ownership will go down. You'll use services. Um, It's going to be more like public transit. And Mm -hmm. so where does the insurance come in? But the way I've been seeing it is high, almost like we have these high occupancy vehicle lanes, to allow for carpooling and and, and greater speeds, I think there, you know our express lanes will become uh, autonomous vehicle lanes for, for lack of a better term.
0: It seems like some of the smart city stuff plays into this in terms uh-huh. of one: do you get to a place where the the cars are kind of meshed together almost and are communicating with each other yeah. and with the infrastructure? Uh-huh. But then, two, it seems like that would facilitate some things around. You know, I know I know one of the the arguments against like ride sharing and things like that, is that it's actually made congestion worse. If you had almost like a hive mind <laughs> around okay. it, it sounds creepy, but I mean like at the same time, it's like, it seems like some of the congestion issues and things like that could theoretically be mitigated by all of these things sort of being connected together.
1: Yeah, that's the goal and the hope. That also helps us in in some positive ways here. Um, imagine if you will, someone is injured somewhere on a street or has a heart attack for God's sake. Any unoccupied autonomous vehicle near that person could be alerted, and uh, that person could be helped. There may be a defibrillator in one of them that that people, bystanders, could help and help that person uh, uh, with that, and help get them in the vehicle to get them to the hospital. We'll say, right? You know, your traffic systems will become much more regulated, but it'll be it'll be like this. um, I was watching a video the other day where it was showing you know this this uh, this constant. You know, having these constants, the so constant travel speeds and constant uh, regulation of the traffic will make it much more efe- effective and efficient. And, and part of the problem is, do we go the route of mobility as a service? Or do we go the route where everybody has their own self-driving car? The problem of having everyone have a self-driving car is we're not going to solve this problem.
0: If you have the Model B, I have my own vehicle, Uh And now that's a reason for me maybe not to move into an urban environment and to stay in kind of my suburban environment because now my commute is a lot nicer. And, oh, my car will just drive itself home. Now you're talking about two commutes every day. How do you think about where where these cars go when they're not being driven?
1: That's one of the things. I mean, like right now we have over 500 million parking spaces in the U.S., right? and. We're not going to need those. My belief is it's going to be mobility as a service. There, there have been, uh, I think it's about thirty of the thirty-five states in the U.S. right now that have some type of law or regulation on the books with respect to autonomous vehicles. And I think it's going to move closer and closer to you have to have a, a highly specialized license to be able to drive, and it's only in a certain area. Like if you have a hobby where you want to drive your certain vehicle right you can do it somewhere almost like you have whatever you're going to do specialized ice skating or whatever yeah i think we have to get away of the from the idea of private ownership of vehicles and i think what that'll mean is that means there's more space for other things like for instance if i have a home with a garage uh, that garage can become another room uh, it could be almost like an accessible dwelling unit where uh, it might be an Airbnb space, or it might be a space for my my in-laws to come visit and live in uh, in the future. So uh, the suburban life it will be impacted greatly in one way or another based on this uh, this movement. So, but the thing with the smart cities you're saying as well, what you know, I was talking about those air quality sensors. Uh, Google worked on a project with a company called Aclama, and they put on their Street View cars they put air quality sensors that looked at about seven or eight different. Uh, metrics: uh, Black carbon, nitrous dioxide, nitrous oxide, hydrocarbons, um, ozone and um, sulfur dioxide and all these things that come from vehicles. And on their street view cars, uh, they put these sensors. So you, you would have a much more granular view of the environmental quality. And I think that's going to be a big thing um, with these vehicles as well, reporting all that data back to that hive mind, as you, as you put
0: it from what you've read or folks you've talked to, as it impacts sort of urban planning, does it reverse the kind of flight to the city because, because my commute can be theoretically so much more enjoyable. I think the impact
1: of the vehicles themselves will still, I think, I think people will still want to live in cities. And the reason I think that is because like I said, the streetscapes uh, where urban planners are going with streetscapes um, and how they're thinking. In fact, um, Gensler's been doing a lot of work on this. The architecture firm, thinking about the impact of the autonomous vehicle. You know, we have these places that are parks now, these big green spaces, but they're they're anticipating that streets will become drop-off zones uh, for these vehicles. You'll have like a hub where you drop people off, but the rest of the space, you're going to have these things like lateral parks, which are essentially streets that are greenscaped. Um, So, like, I work on Michigan Avenue. It's a six-lane street right now, three lanes going each way. But I think with vehicles like this, it'll become more more like a promenade, more like a a ped mall of sorts, and allow for uh, these vehicles to become demographically uh, enabled pop-up shops. So based on the buying habits of people in a certain demographic area, certain pop-up shops might come your way from, uh, from Nike or whomever, right, that are autonomous vehicles. They'll just show up and you'll be able to do that Nike experience in that, that little that little Ped mall green space area that used to be a six lane street.
0: Could also um, see maybe service service oriented, you know, vehicles. Like if you you know it's one step to kind of not be driving, right? And to be able to kind of out and listen, you know, listen read or watch Netflix or whatever. But I could also see a scenario where maybe there's a mobile gym that, you know, yeah. use that hour more effectively or do my nails or get my hair cut or whatever. Yeah. That could be interesting.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, along with that, uh, rather than, let's say if I'm going to Detroit, uh, Minneapolis, or somewhere near the Chicago area geographically, uh, rather than booking a flight in the evening, I could have a hotel room come pick me up and drive me, and I sleep as it's driving me. Yeah. You know? and then so, but then also, uh, there's a company here in Chicago called Priva. What, what Priva's doing, that's interesting to me, is you have this mobile office. You know, I'm, I'm talking to realtors about this space being something because right now what they're doing is they're driving clients between properties and also a client will ask them a question about a property. They're Googling for the answer while they're driving. Uh, rather than do that, $2 a mile, they could get something like Priva and have this transportation network company drive them around while they, they show, because they, they have monitors in there as well and they have Wi-Fi enabled, they could show uh, CMA up on a screen while they're being driven between properties, Mm -hmm. competitive market analysis, sorry to use the acronyms, you know, show what the neighborhood's doing, what the neighborhood market's doing. That's, that's where it becomes really compelling. Like you, you know, it really is a mobile office. I mean, it's like a place that I could be docked somewhere, charging, working on, uh, working on my work, but then it takes me to my next appointment, picks up my clients and then takes us on to show some properties, you know,
0: any destination that might have been a you know like kind of in that that four to six hour drive where uh-huh. you're always kind of making that calculation of should I should I fly or should I just yeah. you know rent the car or whatever I mean it makes that almost a no brainer.
1: Absolutely, yeah, because you don't have to go through security. You don't have to you know you don't have to go to the airport, park your car, or get there two hours early if you need to stop off and do something on the way, like I could go see my parents on the way to Minneapolis, you know, and stop and, and,
0: and, uh, and see them for a moment, you know, shifting gears just a little bit. I mean, um talking about something that you mentioned that kind of what precipitated your lab being stood up with some of the stuff around kind of big data and all of that. And uh-huh. it seems like real estate's always been kind of a data oriented business, but it was almost like to use a dumb kind of sports analogy. It was, it was sort of crude. It was like, Home runs, you know, like school, like school ratings and things like that. We're we'll putting like home runs or whatever. And has there been a move to where they're kind of leveling up and kind of it's like it's more like Moneyball, where it's like we have all of this data, we're combining it in kind of u- new and unique ways around kind of what make people, you know, happier or more thriving or just um, what makes a property good or bad. Is, is, is are the analytics around that kind of getting more robust or are people doing interesting things there?
1: Yeah, one of the challenges, so we, we do, data is our currency um, in, in real estate, but typically it's been data that's been entered by the broker into an MLS, right? One of the challenges around the real estate space is people will come to me and ask for a, nat- a national feed of all the data for real estate, and there's no such thing. You have to get a license with to one of those MLSs or get some sort of syndication service, and you can only use the data in a certain way. And so that's one of the challenges. When people say they're going to come in and disrupt the real estate space, I gladly welcome them. <laughs> it's a very challenging space in that regard. Now, what's happening, though, um, people are taking that data and they're augmenting it with data that they have access to. So, for instance, there's one group and uh, they're taking – you know, rather than you looking and seeing what your monthly mortgage payment will be, they take data about – the demographic data about that community – and they add it into that monthly mortgage payment. So your commute costs, uh, gas prices, uh, insurance, um, and they create what they call it's a company called uh, TLC Engine, and they create something called your true lifestyle cost. What they look at is you know all that data, like I said, like your your insurance rates, your uh, the schools, uh, all that data. And they give you a monthly – what your monthly costs are going to be. So you might be looking at three properties, one in our Lincoln Park neighborhood here in Chicago, which is expensive, Uh, one out in Oak Park, uh, which is a suburb of Chicago, and Naperville, which is a little further out. I might be looking at those three areas, and my home in Naperville might seem cheaper or I can get more for my dollar, but – If I start thinking about commute costs, about time on the road, if I think about, you know, insurance costs or anything else around that or the school systems, uh, it might turn out that Lincoln Park is a better fit for me and might be cheaper in the long run uh, to live there. So they're really thinking about, you know, other costs that are associated with owning that property, not just the property itself. But then there are also a lot of people that are working in the AI space uh, with data to help you, you know, doing things like creating natural language around photos. Um, which may not sound that innovative. Um, I mean it is, but at the same time for real estate, one of the challenges our members have right now is for every listing they have to enter all the photos and then create a description of those photos for uh, machine readable for ADA compliance. We've been working with some companies that do AI to create natural language around those photos to auto populate that ADA compliant field. Um, so that way it streamlines that process to, to get that data in there. But then that data can also be used to create keywords and, and search results, right? So then you can start looking for kitchens with a certain type of natural light. And then you can start, uh, rather than looking at the outside, you, know, you, you, always get a, you always get a picture of a property, um, and it's the outside picture. But you might be concerned more about the kitchens, and you want to look at properties aligned. Side by side to compare kitchens for properties, and there's a company called Real Scout that's doing that. Um, and they were one of our, we had an accelerator here at NAR, and they were a member of that accelerator. But they're doing exactly that, you know, being able to create searches based on
0: uh, your your interests. Here's my Pinterest board of my dream home. Go find yeah. boxes like that.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot happening around the space, but like I said, it, it, you know, it has its time to enter once you understand what's going on in, in the space more deeply, um, for sure.
0: What, what else are you seeing from an ARK perspective? It seems like there'd be a ton of applicability.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, and, and actually, so I give a talk um, where I, I talk about some of the artificial intelligence stuff I was talking about. Uh, that mixed in with augmented reality, uh, mixed in with the self-driving cars. So in the future, being able to drive by, rather than we have signs out in the yards now, uh, you could actually, you know, in your self-driving cars see where these places are located and tell it which one you want to go to you know because there'll be like a marker showing where it's located at right with augmented reality you know apple's doing a pretty amazing job and so is google uh, with ar core Uh, you'll see apps like ikea Uh, they have ikea place where you can take a piece of furniture place it in a room and see what the natural light does to it in that space but also walk around it make sure it fits and, and all that where I think in the next couple of years, less than a couple of years, someone uh, is going to build an app that will allow you to, by pointing your camera at your furniture, gather all your furniture onto your phone in a 3D rendering that you can then take into a property and stage that property with your furniture to make sure it looks the way you want it to look. And, you know, that sounds uh, like it will have some utility, but where it really becomes, you know, the thing about a real estate, it's a very emotional process. and. If you develop an emotional attachment to a property, you're going to work really hard to make that your property. And I think that's where the 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 ability to be able to capture all of my furniture and take it in somewhere and stage that space. Uh that's where it becomes a, a big selling point, you know? That's where it becomes more useful. There's a company called they're here in Chicago called Dirt Do It Right This Time, D I R T T, and they are doing in commercial spaces, you can start to build out your commercial space and have Hololens lens on and walk around in, in the actual space and see what it would look like to have a room built out around you in this space.
0: We're doing, but, we're dealing with the build out of our new space right now. That would have been great,
1: but it doesn't just do that. It also creates a floor plan from, from above and creates a virtual environment. So it does VR, AR and floor plan at the same time. Um, and it's, Pretty amazing technology to look at and happy to introduce you to them if you'd like to talk to them because it's, it's cool stuff. But, you know, build outs become faster. If you do an open house, let's say you have, you know, because within the next five years, you're going to have something on your face or person that will allow you to see information around you. As I walk into a property, I can have the amenities listed in each Room as I walk through, floors were just added. Um, you know, low VOC uh, oak uh, floors are, were, were put in. Uh, the triple pane glass windows were installed in 2014. Here's their rating. You know, and so you start to have this informational hybrid of the MLS with the property uh, in front of you, where I think AR is going to be really compelling. As as I was talking about, you see properties listed. But imagine if you're sitting in front of a property, it's the, you know, to the side, you see the house there. All the data about the property is being displayed on the windows because the windows now don't have to serve the purpose of safety where a driver has to look out and see where you're going, but they become a screen using light field technology. And you can interact with the data that's showing on the window about the property and select the things you're interested in. And that goes back and augments your initial preference list you gave your agent and will start to say, okay, you, you didn't tell us about kitchens, uh, I keep using kitchens, that tells you a lot about me, right? But you, did, <laughs> you didn't say much about kitchens uh, when we initially talked, but you've now looked at two properties where you identified kitchens as being important to you. Here are three more properties in this neighborhood in your price range that we can go look at right now. Would you like to go? And then you go. So this information awareness, uh, you know, using the smart cities as well, uh, smart city data, The windows then become this augmented space. I mean, you know, everybody is so nervous about augmented reality and what's, you know, they're not sure what they they understand what it means and what the implications are. But I think it's going to be, you know, because obviously it becomes ad space at some point, right? What does that mean for me uh, wearing these glasses or goggles to walk in a space where I'm being advertised to all the time? But you know, as a new traveler in a city, um, as a as a real estate agent, as anybody who wants to understand your urban environment better, I think I think they're going to be a huge win. Um, honestly, AR ARKit and ARCore, you know, because you can do instant measurements by pointing your phone at something. Um, you know, understand your space better, be more effective. I mean, imagine if Amazon—they may have this app. I just haven't seen it yet. But I point at my window because I want to find a new set of blinds. And then Amazon gives me fifteen sets of blinds that actually, because measuring blinds out is always, you know, you forget you forget what you have, and then you go and you're like, oh, I'm two inches off. Great, having that ability is going to be and and actually, if I take a shot of my room, the tones and colors of my furniture, uh, that could influence the type of couch that I'm shown uh, based on that,
0: right? Well, and when you're moving too, I mean, it, it, isn't it able to calculate them in 3D too? So I mean, it could tell me your couch will fit or not fit.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's the thing that's really compelling about, uh, the measurement tool in the air kit. And also imagine this, right? Uh, moving company, uh, they're asking how many boxes you need. What if you just moved around your space and it starts to be able to calculate the cubic volume you need for, for boxes? How many boxes are you going to need for this property? You know, without you having to guess and be off or, um, but also that would affect your moving estimate as well.
0: You talked a little bit about some of the blockchain stuff a little bit earlier. Is there anything else interesting you're seeing kind of from, from that perspective? I've seen a little bit like yeah. on the type, like title kind of side of things, but what else are you seeing?
1: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You know, what's encouraging for me in this space are groups like the Cook County Recorder's Office here in Chicago thinking about this and what it means for the transactive process. When When we started the lab and we were looking at the Internet of Things, one of the things I thought would be compelling was being able to have this data tale about the property. And I think blockchain is that data tale about uh, the different events that happen in that home. So uh, you know, it almost becomes uh, you know, the Carfax for the home where all those points are captured and immutable and, and you can show you know how well a person kept that home up um, um, with that. Now, one of the other things we looked at was a unique property ID for every property and every parcel in the US and so we built out a little library for that a couple of years back but the the point was if we have a way to know what that true property is the blockchain would definitely be a, a way to do that you know department of energy also had a project very similar to that and they ended up using our library to to build their proof of concept, um, where they wanted to do the energy usage for each parcel in the U.S. And uh, they wanted a way to track that and create a hash for each property. One of the challenges with blockchain right now is it's a hammer in search of a nail. There are people who are looking for it to be the cure for their database problems when in fact it might just be the way that they're working with their database. One of the things I will tell you is if the real estate standards organization they just started a distributed ledger work group, uh, which is looking at how blockchain can be utilized in the real estate beyond the transaction, but also in the transaction. So MLSs are keeping a keen eye on this. That's compelling. Uh, the fact that uh, title has uh, they have an opportunity. I think. A lot of people in title right now are nervous or very scared that it's going to replace what they do but there's opportunities to 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 adapt your business model and 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 move along with the technology evolve along with it or you know the disruption happens there's an inter- intermediation and that's what we're looking at so how how is it that we evolve the business uh, along with that i, I don't don't get me wrong i don't think blockchain is a disintermediator for for the real estate process it will streamline the transaction process i mean rather than you know 60 days and, and duplicative reviews of um, data about a property it could take a week to two weeks you know um, that it all could be streamlined because everybody could have access to the same blockchain and that data that they require for five different things could be in one place you know
0: what did I not ask you about that uh, that I should have that you're that you're super excited about? I, I think uh, convergence
1: is a, is the big thing. Um, you know, we've talked about five or six different technologies here, but they're all going to come together. Um, you know, it's funny. Like I, I say this a lot. Like 1990s, the internet was the thing, right? Um, in 1994, I think all of these technologies, like artificial intelligence and machine learning, augmented reality. Autonomous vehicles, blockchain, Internet of Things are all almost like in the early 90s of the Internet in different ways, right? Different different parts of that spectrum. So like blockchain's like 1994 Internet, right? Uh, internet of Things is around 1997, 98 right now, Internet. And what that was meaning right before Google broke. As they mature, and artificial intelligence is one of those fascinating ones where deep learning has really helped it accelerate. There's also the generative adversarial networks. Which are very fascinating for that. That will help, like the question about safety around autonomous vehicles. So, artificial intelligence uh, having the ability to generate images and then discriminate those images. That's what generative adversarial networks are. They learn the same data set and all that. But that's going to help accelerate artificial intelligence and make it safer. And I think that is going to have a big impact on the real estate industry in many different ways. So, like. Uh, you might have seen video of Obama saying things he actually didn't say, but it looks photorealistic. And there's companies now creating audio that does the same thing. There's a company called Lyrebird, um, where I read 70 sentences into the Lyrebird uh, neural network, and it replicated my voice uh, with text. I put text in, and it replicates my voice. Not not 100% perfect, but you know, in a way that um, that was uh, useful, serviceable. Now, combine those two things and imagine, if you will, text listing property data being fed into that system, and it looks like the realtor is actually talking about a property uh, without ever having recorded video of them talking about that property. So if I can't be in one of these autonomous vehicles to meet with a client, then I have an autonomous vehicle that has a video representation and vocal represent, audio representation of me – talking about the property and answering any questions rather than Alexa's voice or Siri's or Google's voice, right? And so I think I think those types of shifts where these technologies converge, so a vehicle with me virtually in it talking to them with augmented reality showing me data about the neighborhood, uh, blockchain being able to represent that data in a true historical context, you, you start to have this really interesting place that I'm living in where my home is providing energy back to the grid, I'm walking down Michigan Avenue rather than driving down it and I can hail a vehicle. that will come and pick me up and take me along my way. It's a not quite utopian, but there are a lot of possibility there to improve and streamline the quality of life for clients or, or, or the customer.
0: Very cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was uh, very, very fascinating. I'm going to have to go through and track down all of the links to all of that stuff, tons and tons of resources, but we'll include that in the the notes and everything like that but yeah this was this was fantastic really appreciate taking the time my guest today was chad curry be sure to check out our show notes at digintent.com slash podcast and that wraps up another episode of the disruptors For more advice on how to become a disruptor for your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, would love a quick review on iTunes or Anchor or wherever else you're listening. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.